not keeping good records, not having a good accounting, not keeping things documented is, is something that a lot of people do. And it's something that always comes back to bite them. And then the other thing is getting into a situation and you're not hiring the right professionals and you're not getting the right support or asking for help. There are a lot of people that they don't want to go spend the money on the contract or to get the good lease or on the inspection, right? They don't want, they avoid those things, but then the problem becomes much more expensive on the back end. And that happens over and over and over and over again. And then maybe even simpler than that is working with the wrong people. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome back to another Passive Wealth Principles podcast show. I'm your host, Jake Harris. Again, I say welcome back. I'm assuming you've listened to another episode. If you haven't listened to another episode, welcome to the first time to the Passive Wealth Principles podcast. We're bringing fire today with Matt Anderson. Matt Anderson is a uh, attorney, a litigation attorney that negotiated construction defect cases and real estate law in contract negotiations. He leveraged his law experience to start getting into real estate investing. And he's just one of those people. And and I I believe everyone kind of has this tendency of being very, very obsessed with something that fascinates them. And it started, and we talk about a little bit him, you know, journeying on to, to be a professional poker player, you know, getting into the world series of poker and going down that path and then deviating from there because he wanted to add more value, uh, to the, to the world as a whole. And then there's just some really, um, interesting points about being a professional poker player that then layered into his benefits of not only being an attorney, but also a real estate investor into the future. The way that he looks at the world is, is incredibly fascinating. And he's actually someone that I'm confident that I'm going to be partnering with in the future on future deals because I just love the way he thinks. So welcome to another episode. Dive into the details of Matt Anderson. Welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. I am very excited today. Matt Anderson, another friend of mine, uh, a super savvy attorney that also happens to own a title company that also happens to be an investor. And so I just think the way that he sees the world is very, very intriguing. Um, We were actually just talking about this before. You're not the asset protection, you know, structuring, putting it in this asset and this and protecting it the other way. But what you are is someone that is, as an investor, thinking of things in the first order principles of an attorney and how do you structure those deals to benefit you as an owner. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I want to, before, I mean, I give you a little high level of what you're doing, but I'd like to hear more about your background uh, and, and maybe kind of walk people through your journey to where you are today. Um, take, take as long as you need, as far as, you know, but I'd say a f- you know, few minutes or, or longer to, uh, to discuss like, 
you know, uh, where are you today? Where do you live? And then how and what led you up to be an attorney, investor, title company owner, and everything else? Yeah, sure. I'm in, I'm in the Middle Tennessee area. I grew up here in Middle Tennessee, uh, you know, went to school here, went to college in Middle Tennessee, thought I was going to be a uh, doctor at first, just sort of took the path that was, you know, pretty much given to me, uh, realized pretty quickly that that didn't jive with my entrepreneurial spirit. And uh, so decided to pivot from that. I actually got into playing poker for a living during college and starting some businesses and doing all kinds of wacky things while I was in college, just trying to find my way after going off the path, if you will. Eventually went to law school. And while I was in law school, uh, things were going well, but I made a big misstep in law school and screwed up my bar application. And so while all my friends were going to these fancy legal jobs, I was sitting there uh, waiting tables driving Uber, trying to figure out what I had done wrong with my life. <laughs> uh, but luckily for me, that was when I became obsessed with real estate. I started reading tons of real estate books, listening to podcasts, started driving for dollars, looking at houses, just became completely obsessed. Uh, did pass the bar, um, was about $150,000 in, in debt, making $10 an hour clerking, and got my real estate license while that was happening. I'd wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning. I'd drive to my $10 an hour clerking job. And on the way there and back, I'd listen to podcasts. I'd try to learn. And then on the side, I was getting my real estate license. I was fortunate to get a offer at a law firm, um, a small law firm, where I was doing real estate construction litigation. And that was, that was awesome because it fit with my real passion. It helped me learn skills that uh, furthered me in my investing career. So I was a full-time litigator, uh, still do that, but not quite full-time. And on the side, I was doing real estate deals, trying to build long-term wealth, which I knew was my overarching plan rather than just being a full-time lawyer. So nowadays, I still do the litigation practice. I've got a title company, like you mentioned, but really, the bigger picture goal is to do more of these real estate deals. And we're most heavily focused on trying to find more commercial uh, office, retail, and multifamily deals right now. That is a, an interesting path there. So tell me a little bit more about that. How, how did you mess up your bar application? <laughs> well, I, you know, there might have been some subconscious stuff going on there where I, I wasn't really excited about it, perhaps. but. At the end of the day, I just screwed up the application. You have to submit all kinds of things and something got lost in the shuffle. So I was in the middle of studying 40 hours a week for the bar exam when I got the call, hey, sorry, you're not going to be able to sit for this exam. And, you know, I've, I've got internships lined up. I've got plans and I can't take it. It's the summer of, you know, and I've got to wait another seven or eight months until I can be a licensed attorney all of a sudden. But like I said, it was a blessing in disguise because I had this huge gap period where it was somewhat humiliating and sort of a rock bottom experience for me. But I had to you know, claw my way out of it. And I learned, um, I found a passion and learned a lot of skills during that time period. That's really interesting. You mentioned poker. Yeah. <laughs> so you're playing. So it was like as a professional online. Like what, 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 what was that? Talk to me about, uh, about the poker playing. Yeah, well, I have this tendency to get really hooked on something, become passionate about it, and want to learn everything there is about it and just get really good at it. So in college, I had some buddies. We started playing for fun, but then I started getting very competitive about it. And it essentially led to me doing that full time. After I decided I didn't want to go to med school, I was basically playing poker full time. And enrolled. I was enrolled full time at school, but I was only really in school part time. And so I did that for a while. I thought I was going to do that for a living, um, and I still believe I could have been successful doing it. What what made me decide to not do it was just a realization of what I wanted in my life from a from a deeper perspective. You know, family, who I wanted to become, skills I wanted to learn. Um, I wanted to add value to other people, and for me, poker was only a game about making more money, and I didn't see long term fulfillment there. And so I played in the, 
World Series right before law school, burned a lot of money through that, didn't do that well. And that was sort of my my bridge burning moment, if you will, to never look back really. So what were some of the lessons that you learned from poker that has now uh, helped you in uh, in your investing career or maybe your law career now? A ton, actually. Funny enough, I was in a deposition last week and I was taking this guy's deposition and um, I won't get into too many of the weeds because it's an active case, but let's just say that I was able to tell he was lying to me very easily <laughs> and use that to my advantage. But uh, it's actually more helpful in just general ben- business senses a lot of times. It really got me accustomed to risk, I think is one of the, the first things it did. It got me very used to being to taking risk, but then thinking about risk in a gamesmanship sort of way, whereas I was only going to get ahead if I'm, I took a course of action, knew the risks of it, calculated the upsides and the downsides, and embraced it. And you sort of have to do that in, in real estate too, right? You know, there's not really necessarily a risk-free path to get ahead, um, but learning how to be comfortable with the risk and then figuring out, I, I like to look for asymmetric upside situations where there's some risk, but the upside is dramatically um, bigger than the downside. And that and along with, you know, calculate, calculating, you know, pot odds is something we do in poker where we look at what we've got on the table and chips. We we think about what is the likelihood of the various outcomes and then what is the reward going to be. And that's how we make our decisions to to uh, call or fold or raise a lot of times. And you you got to share a lot of similar thought process processes in business and in real estate. So that's just some things. I mean, I could really go on and on about that. So that's a dangerous question for me, to be honest. <laughs> No, no, I, I think that is is something that is is so valuable, uh, you know, and, and really I calculate, you know, say that as calculated risk is because exactly there are so many things that you just hit on right there. Understanding your downside, like what if I'm wrong? You know, what does this look like? Do I do I go bust? Am I out? And obviously, you know, in poker and tournaments, sometimes you're out, you can't rebuy, you're done. So it's like, okay, I don't even have a, a chip in a chair, you know, the, a chance to survive, to make it to the finish line. So the, like the downside risk is, hmm, this is not good. I think it, when you start understanding and thinking of that from an investor's perspective is protect the downside. The upside takes care of itself. Um, and, and obviously that's something uh, I've not been a professional poker player, played a, a handful of times, but that's just the way that I I, I think as well. Um, you mentioned something that, um, becoming accustomed with risk or, you know, um, you know, is that just from the fact that you're moving all in when you're, uh, you know, you don't know, or you have incomplete information or what is it that you, uh, you know, describe that and that, that poker kind of thing that's helped you, uh, understand as being an investor. You know, that's a good question. I think we all have different levels of risk aversion, somewhat, you know, maybe because of our upbringing or genetics or, you know, combination of different things. And so I think different people just have different levels of of risk aversion or a tendency to go towards risk. But maybe more than anything, what it did was just to feel comfortable with that relationship. You know, the repetitions, just being there in those situations where at any moment, you know, something can happen and you lose everything. Right. You know, and it's just a game. It's it's not necessarily the same level of risk, depending on on what you're doing, but just the repetitions of being in that environment. And then the other thing, too, is is and it's connected is you have to be patient with risk, too. And it's it's similar in like tournament poker, for example. The analogy I like to use is, you know, people tend to get carried away with mediocre hands for in poker, for example. Right. Because they've been sitting there. They really, you could equivalent, you could compare it to really wanting to be in a deal. You know, you're wanting to get in the action. You're wanting to see something happen. You've been sitting there for a while and you get carried away with your pocket tens or your pocket jacks. And people do that in real estate too. You know, they've, they haven't found a deal for a few months and they've got the money sitting there and they know that they're sort of, you know, they either don't know what they're doing or it's a, it's a mediocre deal or they're not sure about it, but they're impatient. and. Um, it's it's 
there's just a lot of lessons to be learned, I, I suppose. I've seen a few other people that have been, you know, uh, professional poker players or made a lot of money playing poker that uh, have transitioned that into a real estate career. So it's, it's very um, interesting to hear your insights on that. Um, and actually, I think we could probably spend the entire episode talking about poker and how it translates into to real estate investing. But I wanted to kind of dive back into a little bit of what your law career, you said you, you're you know, now kind of a full-time litigator, you're working or started working at a law firm that was doing uh, construction, you know, was a contract, uh, you know, negotiating or defect or what was it that first kind of real legal care career that kind of got you started and, and what did you, you learn from that uh, portion of it? Sure. Yeah. The majority of what I was doing was construction defect cases and and so for a long time, what I did was I represented contractors. I was hired by their insurance companies to represent them when they were sued. And, and then that transition, so I was going to court, I was doing you know litigation, legal battles with multi-party um, litigation. And, and as that progressed, and as I was doing my real estate investing on the side, I started to get more and more developer, real estate investor relationships. So my business morphed into a mix of construction and real estate litigation and transactional. And so, um, I mean, one thing that was nice about that is in, in litigation, you're really, you're really negotiating all the time. You know, you start the case off, there's a complaint that's filed and everything that happens in that case is really a, a negotiation in more than 95% of those cases settle either, you know, in phone call or out of mediation. Um, and so that was tremendously valuable. The other thing is just learning to be so particular with your words and your arguments and um, learning, uh, you know, those sorts of skills, the record keeping and just seeing how people get into trouble. There's, there's just a lot of things that were valuable. And then as my career progressed, I got very fortunate to be able to help other clients when they're buying commercial buildings or they're dealing with a commercial lease dispute. You know, I got to help other people with their issues where my own personal, you know, wealth, money, reputation was not on the line. I still got to learn a lot of lessons and a lot of best practices um, from other people's situations that, that helped me every day. Yeah, that, I mean, makes a lot of sense as far as you, you don't have to, I mean, you're seeing the, when things go wrong, but it's not necessarily, you know, you're not in the stressful situation of it going wrong and you losing millions of dollars. You're like, hey, let's, how can we fix this or solve this, this uh, dispute or this problem? So what, um, I mean, how long did you do that? Uh, and you're, you're still doing it, correct? I'm still doing it. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was doing that probably, you know, 50, 60 hours a week for the longest time. And then I still do that. Um, I was in court this morning. But it's become more of part my, what I do part time essentially. So I I own my own law firm as of uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, but the main focus is is on building wealth through real estate rather than billing my time. You know that's the one of the big issues is it. But it's actually a skill is is because it helps you become more efficient with your time. You know I had to bill by the tenths of the hour everything I was doing, every phone call, every email. Um, it was valuable because I, you know, I was doing that full time and then doing real estate on the side. So I had to be very efficient. You know, I'd be very efficient on my day job. And then I didn't have the luxury to, to have 50 hours a week to, to mosey around and like get a deal here or a deal there, figure it out. You know, I only had so many hours of the day. So that's what sort of led me to less of a, you know, a scaling up approach instead of a scaling out approach in my real estate business. We pretty much just went bigger and bigger every year as fast as we could on the size of the deals and tried to make more per deal. Whereas a lot of people uh, I know in the industry did the opposite where they were trying to, you know, get $500, $10,000 wholesale fees in a year. Right. So. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, you know, we didn't really, you know, prep on this, but I was like, is there any kind of commonality of mistakes that are made in those 
either construction defect or these contract negotiations that you have on, on commercial deals. I know that you and I have got a chance to spend some other time and talk about um, some of the due diligence in, in commercial real estate. But, uh, you know, if there's any kind of for the audience listening to this podcast, like any like normal mistakes or maybe just more common mistakes that um, you know, could, could help uh, people that are listening. Yeah, there's some that, that stand out as kind of like, you know, the same song, different verse over and over again. You know, there's one of them is is people stepping over uh, dollars to pick up pennies. I see that all the time and not doing the preventative steps that they know they should be doing. So, for example, um, not keeping good records, not having a good accounting, not keeping things documented is is something that a lot of people do. And it's something that always comes back to bite them. And then the other thing is getting into a situation and you're not hiring the right professionals and you're not getting the right support or asking for help. There are a lot of people that they don't want to go spend the money on the contract or to get the good lease or on the inspection, right? They don't want, they avoid those things, but then the problem becomes much more expensive on the back end. And that happens over and over and over and over again. And then maybe even simpler than that is working with the wrong people. Um, It is amazing the percentage of times where someone has come to me and they have a a very serious issue. Either a lot of money has been stolen. um, They hired a professional that that really put them in a bad situation. Um, They hired a contractor who built a very bad project. And if they would have actually done some due diligence on the front end, they would have talked to the people they had worked with. If they would have looked at the contractors, other projects, or even done a background check um, and found out that this contractor has been sued, you know, seven times in another state and filed bankruptcy twice before, this is just what this person does. Um, those are two things that really stand out as as happening over and over again, and then. In line with that is partnerships. People get into a lot of trouble with partnerships where they're trying to do, you know, partnerships can be fantastic, but they can be very dangerous too when you don't know who you're you're working with or if you don't understand what what value you're going to bring, what value the other person is going to bring. And if you just sort of do a handshake deal, it leads to a lot of problems. Yeah, I think that... You know, each one of those, I think I've probably experienced at some point in in my career, like every single one of those, Um, you know, it was like, oh, yep, yeah, contractor. Yeah. Did I do a background? No, I didn't. Dang it. No, I was like, ah, did they scam you? You know, get, you know. Well, and I'll throw, I'll throw one more in there too, that is another thing that happens is a lot of people tend to try to squeeze everything they can out of every deal and every situation. And I have found that the people who who always do their best to make everybody win rarely get into trouble. You know, the contractors, the the real estate agents, the investors who go out there and they want to make this deal as sweet as possible for them with no regard for anybody else, they always get sued. They always get in trouble, right? Whereas if if the people who they want their money people to be taken care of, they want the person who they're building the project for to have a nice place, right? They want everybody to be taken care of. They succeed um, and run into a lot more problems in the long run, in my opinion. No, that it totally makes sense. I, I echo that because there's so many times I've been able to get a, a deal across the finish line because we weren't trying to squeeze every last nickel and dime out of the uh, you know, buyer or seller or, you know, vice versa of that. But I've also had people I've been affiliated with and partners and other things like that is they're just, you know, out for blood every single time that, you know, and then, you know, when it comes into inevitably something goes wrong because on every project that I've ever been a part of, something goes wrong. (laughs) Yeah. And when you have to go and sit down and you got somebody across the the table, that's like, they remember when you raked them over the coals, when you took advantage of them. And so they're far less accommodating uh, to, to help you fix the problem. 
Yeah. And I like to think of it as a relationship and a big picture, long-term mindset versus a transactional mindset. You know, there are some people that they just get stuck in the transaction and they care about their bottom line and making an extra percentage or not paying this fee. Right. And then there are other people who think about deals and say, you know what, I want to do business with this person for the rest of my life. I want to have a good relationship with this person. I want to have a good reputation and I'm going to be doing this for 30 years. So if I, if I don't make the maximum on this deal, there's going to be another one. And, and that sort of difference in mindset, I see all the time. And, and it makes a big difference long-term, I think with who wins. Yeah. There's some, again, valuable insight on that statement, thinking long-term instead of short-term. I think there's so many people like you even mentioned earlier with the poker hand that are thinking short-term, I got to go, I got to do something. I got to get in, I got to do that. And, and, um, when you can think long-term and think long-term with other people that are thinking long-term, that's when you can really start aligning your guys's interest together that can benefit you over that, that longer time period. So it's not about how much money can I make this quarter or, you know, this year, or, you know, on this particular deal and transaction. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, Two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. Um, I wanted to kind of take this to uh, some insights that you've given me previously about how you structure some of your leases and how you're putting things out there. I think one of the examples uh, is a lot of people don't read leases when you're buying, when you're signing them, um, when you're doing those other things. So like you as an attorney that's drafting a, a lease um, or maybe you know coming into as an acquisition and you know, landing new tenants, um, what are you doing when you're putting your, your leases together? And, and I'll leave it with that. And then if, if uh, you, you go to one of the actual, where I thought was great nuggets, um, if not, I may ask a little, a follow-up question to that. Well, feel free to, um, you know, I, I, and this sort of goes back to, again, everything is a negotiation. It, it's very, it, it's very dependent on who you're working with, right? You know, if I'm working with someone who comes directly to me, I may start with a different starting form of a lease that's more aggressive then if it's a good friend of mine who's a broker and we've done a lot of deals together, I might use a different form lease. But generally speaking, I like to think of contracts as this as continuation of the negotiation, right? So I'm going to start with the form lease, um, especially in commercial where you can do almost anything uh, as a landlord that has all the protections possible for me, all the advantages I can take. And what I tell my clients a lot of times is, you know, they'll, I'll get comments sometimes from clients that say, will say, well, this seems a little unfair in my favor. It seems a little one-sided. I said, yeah, that's true. But here's the thing. You never have to use that, right? You know, if you have the lease provision in your favor, if they don't breach your lease, you never have to touch it, right? It's there for your protection. And you can decide to uh, be more lenient than what you're allowed to be in the lease, but you can never go back and get that leverage, you can never go back and get that protection that you gave up. So I typically will provide a lease for most tenants that will be very 
frankly, pretty one-sided, but I'm a very fair person, right? I'm not going to try to take advantage of the tenant. I'm just going to make sure I'm protected. And a lot of times what will happen is, believe it or not, people just don't even read it. They'll just sign it. That happens way more often than you would expect. And then, you know, I just did a lease with someone that's a big company, uh, a huge company, or at least from my point of view. And I was very surprised at how little they edited my lease. Very surprised. And they had certain things they wanted to change. But most of the things that were important to me, they didn't bother to negotiate at all. Um, So I don't know if there's certain provisions that are the most interesting to you, but that's just sort of my general mindset in those leases. And and so and I'm going to take it to it's it's a little bit more of a, a technical kind of thing that you put in there was uh, not only if a, a tenant defaults but the entirety of the leases due and attorney fees. So oftentimes I've seen and as a owner of of commercial real estate maybe where I was inheriting other leases is the cost to go after someone to get them to pay the remainder of their lease was going to cost me a lot in attorney fees. So it might have cost me $50,000, to go after them. And especially if you're going against a big corporate entity, like they may just have in-house attorneys that can bleed you dry in excess of what you would get out of the remainder of the lease. And so, you know, and maybe talk to that a little bit more about how you structure that particular thing and, and maybe the, the legal terms around that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so there's, so attorney fees are one of the most important things in litigation scenarios most of the time. You know, when I get, when I get a lawsuit, where I, whether I'm defending it or potentially on the plaintiff side and it's contract related, I'm always looking at the contract first, pretty much. And The first two things I'm looking at are the default provision and the attorney fee provision. And what do they say? Because so many times in these cases, it's about, it goes back to what we were talking about with risk, right? If I've got, uh, let's just say I've got a $100,000 dispute, right? And I've got a contract that says, if I win, I get my attorney fees. And if they win, they don't get theirs. Well, think about how that changes the risk assessment for whether to file that lawsuit or how aggressively to pursue it. Right. It's it's a very dramatic difference. And so um, it's it's incredibly important. And in a commercial lease, unlike a residential residential lease in most states, uh, you can you can have some pretty severe penalties for a breach. Right. So one of the provisions I've used is to essentially um, if the if the uh, if the tenant breaches the lease, I'm going to be getting I'm going to be asking for all of the rent that was due, regardless of whether I can find another another tenant, right? Um, you can't necessarily do that in a residential lease, but in a commercial lease, you can most of the time. It's state by state. And this is probably where I say, you know, I can't give you legal advice. You need to speak to an attorney. But uh, I, I put some pretty severe provisions in there. And it again, it doesn't mean I have to use it, right? If we go into a recession and a tenant is struggling that doesn't mean we can't try to work out a fair deal and try to replace the tenant. But what it does mean is I don't get taken advantage of because I have a poorly drafted lease. And when somebody comes to buy my property or when the bank comes to look at my leases, they say, oh, wow, this landlord is, is pretty protected here. There's not, we don't see a lot of risk. You know, you're packaging your deal with your leases. You know, people look at the rent rolls and the rents. But part of the risk is connected to what do your lease provisions say, right? Because if someone were to default, if something were to happen, if there were a bankruptcy, what happens to your lease in those situations? Well, if you're protected, your lease is more valuable, right? If you're not protected, it's less valuable. So it's just some of the ways I think about it. Yeah. And that's, I I think makes makes so much sense, Um, uh, you know, people that are good at math and, and obviously a lot of people that are real estate related are, are good at calculating, like, look, here's my NOI and here's, you know, uh, you know, great. It's a, a credit tenant or, you know, I, I, the, I know this local guy and he's signing a lease or, you know, individually. And so it's good to, to, to create the financial structure. But what Matt was just saying there is like how much of this also depends on the way that you papered it up. 
put it into the contract. The first thing that's going to get reviewed when something is not going right is that the contract, the lease, the, you know, the, the purchase sale agreement, like whatever that is, it gets paper and pulled out. If it's your, your construction contract with your contractor, that's building your building, something's not going the right way. Oh, it opens the drawer, paperwork comes out. What does it say in there? Yeah. It's amazing how few people don't, don't look at those things at all. I mean, at least, at least it, at least understand how to look at and, and interpret the most important provisions of your lease. And if you don't know what those are, you need to spend some time with an attorney, at least at the beginning, right? And so that's, we we're talking about, or, you know, some of the common mistakes I see is people will jump into, there's nothing wrong with jumping into a new area, but you need to get some education, right? If you don't understand how this commercial lease works, you need to pay for your education if, if that's the way to do it, right? And so, some people are afraid to hire a lawyer to write their lease because they don't think it's worth the money. But what you need to understand is if you pay a lawyer $1,000, I don't know if you're going to get $1,000 of value on that one lease, but you're going to get $1,000 of value in education because what you learn in going through that lease, you're going to be able to use for every lease for the rest of your life, right? If you understand the, you know, I won't get it. I was about to name nerdy legal. Uh, terms for lease provisions. But if you understand the different lease provisions on, on your first lease, then you'll still understand those provisions on your 37th lease, right? It's going to pay you back in the education value, in my opinion. Yeah. And that's, uh, I think it goes back even to the poker, understanding the downside risk versus the upside reward. You know, okay, you spend a thousand dollars with attorney, you don't have that thousand dollars back, but what's the upside or what is, you know, the other thing is like, well, you may have your attorney fees covered and in a dispute, you know, in the future. And that could equate to hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars, or make it even feasible to pursue that, you know, because there's been so many times that I've had things where like, as I said before, it was going to probably cost us $50,000 worth of legal fees to go get maybe seventy-five, dollars $100,000 $100, worth of things. And that's if everything broke in our favor. And so you're like, do I go spend 50000 to get 70000 back and I hope that it works out? Oftentimes you're just like, no, let's not do it. It's not worth the risk. And, and so, but if it was structured in the right way, it was papered out that thousand dollars that you maybe you know paid once maybe makes you a hundred thousand dollars in in a year or two years if that tenant you know doesn't pay up or or the you know partnership doesn't work out or something along those lines um there's so many different facets and and, and ways in which we could navigate this next and, and and one of the things that you know you and I have kind of briefly talked about is how people are able to kind of buy deals. Um, and I know you do, you have a title company now and you're also as this legal thing is subject to financing. So taking existing, and I say why it's relevant in today's, uh, eras, like it's, it's, you know, we're recording this in July of, of 2022. Uh, it may come out in, in August or September or when it ultimately comes out, but we're, you know, higher interest rate environment. Maybe there's some recessionary, uh, you know, uh, forces that are going to drive down the ability to get debt. Um, and so I think this particular topic is something that's very timely for people that are looking at ways or creative ways in which you could potentially structure and acquire uh, some of these deals. So maybe walk us through, like, what is subject to you know, then how do you do that and structure some of the deals or maybe give some examples of them? Because I think it is a, a tremendously valuable uh, tool that you could have in your toolbox uh, if it becomes available. Yeah, it, I, I agree with you too about it being timely. I like subject to, it's a tool in the toolbox, right? It's, it's something that works incredibly well, better than anything else in some circumstances and doesn't work at all in other circumstances. But, you know, just from a simple perspective, all subject to means is you're buying a property subject to uh, typically an encumbrance, right? It could be subject to an easement. It could be, you know, typically what people are talking about in subject to is they're buying it subject to the existing mortgage, right? So they'll leave the mortgage in place from the prior owner typically, 
and they will continue making those payments. And one of the one of the biggest benefits of that, uh, well, there's there's a few benefits, but one of the most obvious one is the benefit of that debt, right? You get the benefit of continuing on with that debt. And one of the things you can do, which is something we've done before, is you can take a property subject to, for example, instead of getting a hard money loan. We've done that before and clients have done that before. So for example, if you've got a uh, property that you you know you're going to turn around in the near future, instead of paying your points to your hard money lender and your high interest rate, you can keep the loan in place temporarily and you can then put it on the market. You could sell it and pay off the underlying mortgage and save a lot of money doing that, right? Um, other people will create wraps, for example, where they'll keep a loan in place uh, and they'll wrap a loan around it. And you can get incredible financial benefits out of that because you're getting you're getting the the spread on the interest. So for example, if you've got a hundred thousand dollar house with a fifty thousand dollar existing loan on it, you can wrap a hundred thousand dollar note at eight percent interest and the underlying's at four percent. You're getting an eight percent return or interest on the fifty thousand dollars. And you're also getting a 4% return on the underlying, that, right? That was already there. So you can, you can do all kinds of great things. There are certainly some risks. The due on sale clause is the most common discussed risk. And there are all kinds of nuances. And there's certainly some learning curve to it. There's logistical issues you got to deal with. Um, but in a nutshell, that is you know, a breakdown of how I see subject two. Well, and, and the reason I also kind of ask is because there's actually one that I'm looking at right now that it's they were able to get some agency debt uh, on a multifamily deal and they have 10 years uh, fixed at 3.9% or 3.7% or something like that. And that's substantially lower than market you know, rent or uh, interest rates right now. And so that debt becomes an asset that is, I think, valuable. So talk me through that. Like, you know, how would you put together a deal? Because you mentioned a couple of the uh, bugaboos or the issues that are, arise sometimes on a due on sale clause or the logistical issues, and maybe just kind of you know, uh, without giving legal advice, consult legal attorneys and, and do all the, the proper channels. But uh, talk me through hypothetical, you know, ways of which you could structure something that uh, maybe doesn't or appeases those challenges. Sure. Well, I mean, first off, this is not, um, like I was saying earlier, it's not a tool that fits every problem, right? Some loans are just, you just don't want to do this with, right? You're not going to want to do this with um, certain small town bank loans. You're not going to want to do this with a lot of commercial debt. Um, and the reason for that is they're going to potentially be paying attention and they're going to have a high likelihood of being unhappy with this, this happening when they notice it, right? So what it's most commonly used for subject to is either for private seller financing loans, um, where the seller who has, or the private financer is, is not going to be concerned about that, or with these residential loans that are being sold off and, and investors take a calculated risk where they say, look, I don't think there's much of a chance of this being due on sale, being called due on sale, but um, I have backup plans in the worst case if that happens. And, and I'm going to take that calculated risk because I'm getting a big upside. And I think the odds of it being called due are pretty low. Um, so that's where it's happening in volume is these residential loans. And you can provide real benefit to the seller in a lot of situations. For example, if the seller um, is unable to pay their mortgage and they're going to lose their house is, is one scenario where it can happen, where you can reinstate their loan and you can keep their credit in good shape, right? So there can be situations where it is a win-win. Um, there are ethical and unethical ways to do subject to deals like anything. And it's fraught with more uh, obstacles than a lot of strategies, but it can be a value, a very valuable tool. Which is interesting. I did some of these subject to things before 
you know, the, the subprime meltdown, you know, as far as in the two thousands, I used to go door knock people that had, you know, notice defaults or trustee sales or things like that. And so I'd show up and I'd knock on the door and, you know, they'd be like, you know, extremely stressful environment. You know, you're, you're getting ready to have your house foreclosed on, or at least you're getting notices that you're, you're past due. Um, and, and exactly what you just said, we, we put together and structured a deal where I was like, I'll bring you current, I'll pay off what your past due, stop the foreclosure process. And actually, you know, sometimes they were able to stay in the house, you know, and, and just reposition it because maybe they couldn't tap into the equity because they had now damaged their credit so much. And so this is only one of the alternative ways in which they could stay. So I think, like you said, it is a very, very valuable tool when it does work and it finds that right niche of the market. Uh, the particular deal that I'm looking for actually is assumable. And so there's some points. And so they've already created some uh, provisions to that. So I think it's they're open to that. You know, part of it is because they have some, um, you know, um, yield maintenance things that they're, you know, they, they bonded it out. And so they don't want the loan paid off at all because of the way that they've structured it and, and put it into, I don't know if it's a CMBS package or, you know, others, but that makes sense too. the do on sale as a residential thing that's sold off. And so, and for, for people that don't understand that is like, just because you go get a mortgage at the bank doesn't mean they have your mortgage, the note, the paper, can sometimes be sold off to somewhere else. And that's, if you've ever noticed, like you get a new notice, like, you know, here's your new mortgage service provider. Oh, now you mail these people your payments or you do these others. That's when they're selling off your mortgage to other people and you're not making payments to the local bank or the local mortgage, um, you know, provider. Um, so that's, that makes a lot of sense if it's in a big old bin of loans, in New York and you're in Tennessee, you know, what is the likelihood that they're coming in and saying, ah, Matt, what do you mean here? You're still making your payments, but we want it paid off. Right. And for me, you know, I've got relationships with private money and, and banks, and then I've got reserves. And so, uh, you know, if I'm doing a deal like that, I have an exit strategy, right? Uh, you know, people um, with no money and no relationships who try to Build some volume of that. That can be a house of cards pretty quickly. That can get scary, <laughs> in my opinion. But yeah, I think that's it's, it's interesting. Um, I feel like you know we could spend like an entire you know like episode just kind of diving into the nuances of how to find these uh, potential deals. But I mean, for a high level, I think this is good for the episode. Um, I think there's also, uh, if you want to start getting next level ninja skills of, of financing, it's also going in and acquiring the notes and buying those from the banks and buying those that are distressed, um, either if it's pools or individual, especially that, so that small town bank. Um, a lot of people don't understand uh, Dodd-Frank and some of the Basel III regulations that banks, uh, uh, you know, can can carry a, a lower amount of cash reserves when a loan is performing. When it starts not performing or doing those other things, they have to cash up and get a lot of additional reserves. And so it, it, it triggers all kinds of issues with them, especially when we're coming into recessionary times and maybe more and more people aren't paying on time or they start paying slow. So they'll sell those mortgages at a discount. So you might owe $5 million dollars they'll sell it to someone else for $4 million or $3 million because they just want it off their books. And I think that's where you can create uh, some really interesting ways uh, to, to create an arbitrage on the underlying asset. Uh, difficult to, to find the right people, difficult to do. And I think people like Matt are, are unbelievably uh, skilled at understanding how to calculate your risk of that and what you're going into. So um, I know that you, we're kind of winding down the episode and I wanted to fire a couple questions at you. I didn't really prep you for these. Sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, what is one thing uh, that you have spent money on that has given you the most freedom 
or just kind of been the highest return on investment that you've ever invested. So just uh, from the cuff, and I'll give you a couple of examples just because I haven't prepped you. Somebody uh, hired someone to fold their laundry. You know, because they're just like, man, it's something we hate doing in our house. It never gets done. My wife, you know, is is always like fighting the battle with all the kids. And so we just hired someone to fold our laundry and it's like the best $40 a week I've ever spent. Other people, it was books. It was other things that had, uh, you know, experiences or a cabin out in the woods, you know, whatever that is that kind of comes top of mind. i uh, love to hear what is giving you the most freedom. Yeah, and I love that. I, I would say probably from a, from the foundational perspective, investment in myself, you know, working that full-time job, but then investing in myself to learn and to do deals and things of that nature. And then I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with figuring out ways to get a better return on my time. And so I do the same thing. We pay for somebody to do our laundry. We pay for, we try to figure out ways to get more and more of, of our life back. And something that has been the most valuable for me is being intentional about partnerships where I'm giving up equity. I'm giving up a lot of times money. Um, I have partnership companies where I am fully funding the operations in return for passivity, right? So I'll have a partner who is going out and finding the deals, negotiating the deals, getting them under contract, and I'm funding it. And for me, that is, I'm getting, I'm getting the best end of the deal in my opinion, right? So that's something I try to be intentional about is how can I use partnerships and leverage other people to get my time back, not just money. So I want to, on that point, I want to come back to that in just a minute. Investing into yourself. How have you invested into yourself? Is there any one particular item that you think was the most valuable investment that you've done into yourself? That is a good question. I would say, I mean, the, the education was huge. But getting out there and spending the time to to meet people I wanted to learn from and uh, building those relationships has been the most valuable for me personally, uh, because it's helped me level up so much faster. And the way I think I've done that quickly is by genuinely trying to add value to other people, you know, trying to learn from other people, but then trying to add value to them. And so, you know, the last commercial building we did, I called... Uh, I called around to get second opinions, ask for advice. And out of, it turned out that the people I was talking to, four of them had actually looked at the building I was buying, had made offers on the building I was buying. And a few of them came back and looked at it with me, right? Just because I've built these relationships and added value to them, they want to help me in return. And the help of other people has pushed me farther faster, I think, than any, anything I could just do on my own. I don't know if that exactly answers the question, but that's just. Yeah, no, I was like, so uh, that, that's, uh, I, I love that answer. Um, how have you met people that you wanted to be around? I mean, do you just, you know, call them up, text them? What, what do you do? How, is you, how have you found some of those people? Well, the first thing I did was, you know, when I was doing my, when I was really in the grind at the $10 an hour grind, I was going to networking meetups. You know, I was going to RIAs and different counties and, and spending time there just meeting everyone I could, soaking up as much as I could. And then as I spent more time and the educational pieces became a little bit less valuable for me, then I started to seek out people who I noticed, oh, wow, that person is doing something I'd love to learn more about and understand better. And I would specifically try to build a relationship with them, see how I could help them. And that's how I I, I did that, is I was somewhat intentional about it. That's awesome. That actually brings us back to the 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 point that I wanted to to follow up on, being that you were maybe fully funding or financing, but the passivity was what you are gaining and leveraging. And I think that's such a valuable thing that you just said. And and it maybe even the the, the one of the most uh, impactful thing that you you've mentioned in the entire episode is because you know this podcast is passive wealth principles is you know, oftentimes we have an understanding, like we want to go control or do the work and have the the aspects, but money is a tool. And then you're trading it, you know, uh, for time, you're trading your time for money. Well, it's like when you can stop trading your time for money and trade your money for other people's time is, is, is the ultimate kind of leverage and hack in life, because how many 
more activities can other people do to benefit your life? It's not taking more hours out of your day. It's, it's utilizing them. And, and I think it even to your networking was finding people that are super good at that one thing. Like they're already kind of a, a mastered that realm. And then how can you maybe create partnerships and, and, and create a, a win-win scenario, getting people on the right seat of the bus. So talk to me a little bit about that as far as how you've structured some of those deals. Um, you know, what is it like that you're looking for today in, in that type of a partnership or structure? Are you actively seeking them out or is it just something that organically happens uh, now that you've had a little bit more success? A little bit of both. So one thing I'm trying to be intentional about right now as far as seeking them out is, you know, obviously I have an advantage and a value add from the legal background, right? So I can take certain very difficult situations and they're less difficult for me than the vast majority of people. So for example, things with title issues, things that are going into a litigation battle, things where people have to hire a lawyer, I can jump in as a partner and take that on. And that's something we we made a we had a deal closed last year with our partners that had like a million dollar gross profit. And part of it was I was able to come in and take over the legal role, right? We didn't have to go find a lawyer or have to, we could we could turn on a dime. So I'm trying to find things more like that intentionally. Um, other than that, though, it's really more been organic where, uh, I, I don't, I'm going to butcher this quote, but isn't it Zig Ziglar who said, uh, if you want to obtain everything you want in life, help other people obtain everything they want. And I know I ruined that quote, but it's still been a philosophy of mine or a mindset of mine is I really have just tried to help as many people win as possible. Um, and when you do that and people inevitably come back to you and they want to help you win too. And so it's, it's created this uh, back and forth where I will find a deal or an opportunity and I know who to call on and say, Hey, maybe we can figure this out. And the same thing will come back to me, right? If someone will find, uh, a deal and they'll bring it to me and we'll work on it together. So it's mostly been organic in that way. I love that. I think, um, I, I, I know that you and I are going to work together doing stuff and working and maybe we structure some partnerships and, and going after it. Cause I don't like doing the legal, uh, kind of things at all. And so, uh, the fact that somebody can review those, I'd love that. And I'd love to have that as a partnership. Um, one kind of final question, uh, you know, ask for book recommendations because I think a lot of people that in the audience are, are big book readers or maybe podcast or, or something that you've read that has been the most impactful to you, either most impactful or you've gifted it out to people the most, um, recommended it, uh, kind of some shape, take it, you know, whichever path that you think, and then give us a little, um, snippet of why that was so, uh, that you recommended or gave it out or, or impactful. Sure. Uh, one of them, and this is probably fairly random, but Scott Trench's Set for Life book was one that I've gifted probably the most. Um, I've given it away to my little brothers. I've given it away because for me, it was very valuable. Something we didn't get into is we've done like seven house hacks. And, you know, we did a lot of sacrificial things to build our wealth slowly, you know, where I was making, I, I was making $10 an hour, $150,000 in debt. We had to make a lot of sacrifices to get any sort of momentum going. You know, I was we our first property um, we bought in Nashville was a seventy thousand dollar condo. If you can imagine, we were not living <laughs> we were not living in a downtown skyscraper condo. It was not you know. Um, so those lessons in there about house hacking and building wealth on the early stages. If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have got the momentum to really. Um, grow as an investor. So that's been the one I've gifted the most. That was pretty valuable for me. That's awesome. I haven't even heard of that one. So uh, that's awesome. I think that there's some some uh, people, my brother-in-law, who is now like 20, 21, making some good money as a salesman, as a car salesman. He's now getting all this money coming in. But I think that is something I'm going to go share with him. So Matt, I really and truly appreciate you, your time. And obviously, uh, as I said earlier, I'm positive that you and I are going to do some deals together or be partnership on something I just love the way that you think uh, through things. How can people 
um, reach out to you? And then what is your ask of the audience? Is there, you know, a a particular deal? Uh, Should they bring all of their title work to you or just whatever that is? And then ways that people can find you and bring those uh, things to you. Sure. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me as always love talking with you. Can't wait to do a deal with you. You can find me at Matt with two T's at torotitle.com, T-O-R-O, by email or go to torotitle.com is the easiest way. I guess the ask would be, I love, I love deal engine, you know, deal engineering, creative deal structuring, creative financing. So my ask would be if you have an interesting deal that uh, you want some help on and want to talk through, particularly if it's a commercial deal, give me a call. Let's talk about it. Awesome. Thank you again, Matt, and everyone else. Talk to you later. This has been another amazing episode of Passive Wealth Principles. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.